This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Clyde Snow and Sessions, based in Salt Lake City with offices in Oregon and California. For over 65 years, Clyde Snow has represented clients throughout the West. Clyde Snow, serious about solutions. Hello, and welcome to Ripple Effect, a podcast putting water into context. I'm Emily Lewis, your host, and I'm a water attorney here in Salt Lake City, Utah, practicing creative solutions to today's and tomorrow's water problems. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, and welcome to Ripple Effect. I'm very excited for today's episode because I have been trying to get Mr. Bill Butcher on this podcast for quite some time because he wears a lot of hats and I think would bring a really interesting and unique perspective to our discussion. So today's guest is Bill Butcher from Price, Utah. Bill is the president of the Price River Water Users Association. He is also the president of the Price River Watershed Conservation District and also operates Marstein Livestock, which is an agricultural operation outside of Price. So he wears a lot of hats. He does a lot of cool things in water. And I thought that he would be a really good voice to bring into the discourse just because he has such an on the ground perspective about kind of what's happening in Utah water today. So with that, Bill, do you want to give a little introduction kind of about who you are so our listeners can get to know you a little bit? Sure, Emily, and thanks for having me. Been looking forward to doing this with you for a long time too, and I'm glad we finally got together. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm a fourth generation rancher. We generally consider ourselves a ranch here in Price, all over eastern Utah, really. I have about 700 irrigated acres here on the Price system, and like I said, fourth generation rancher. I I grew up on this ranch, and that's kind of all I ever wanted to do. Ended up going to school. I, I had kind of a gift with computers, and I ended up actually getting a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering from the University of Utah. I did and not know when that. I was, <laughs> when, I was, when I was done with that, I decided I really wasn't a very good engineer. I wasn't cut out for it. And my parents were running this big ranch, and they were getting a little older, and I decided I would give up the engineering field and just step in and take over this ranch. A couple of years later, my brother graduated with a mechanical engineering degree and was in about the same situation. He joined me. So the two of us from this place, that's kind of what it is. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I got into water kind of by accident. You know, I, I always wanted to just be the guy on the tractor, just minding my own business, not mm-hmm. worrying about anything. Let the old timers take care of the water. They've done a good job with it forever. But the trouble with old timers is they get old and I was asked to step into the Pressure Water Users Association when one of their board members passed away. It kind of just happened by accident. I didn't grow up meaning to be a water manager or anything like that. I have to so, tell the listeners, my favorite meetings are with Bill because he always joins us from the tractor. <laughs> and do. so we have these great Zoom meetings and Bill's just happily driving along. And so it's my favorite. It's my favorite aspect of of our projects together. So cool. I want to talk to you about your associations here in a minute, because I think it's really important to break down, you know, how producers get involved in their local community and the various water organizations that they can and and, and are often part of. But before we do that, then, could we talk a little bit more about like Marcin livestock? So you've got 700 irrigated acres. And so of those irrigated acres, generally, like, what are you growing? What crops are you growing for your operation? So we're basically a cattle operation. So we grow whatever we need to support the cows. We're really not a farm. We're, mm-hmm. we're supporting cows. But I've, I've got 
somewhere between two and 300 acres of alfalfa. Mm-hmm. And I do several dozen acres of small grains, quite a bit of corn as a rotation. Just that's kind of how you do it. You run alfalfa until it runs out of pep and then you plow it out and put in a corn or a small grain. Mm-hmm. And that just, it's just good farming practice. Then I have a bunch of grass pastures. So I've got grass pastures that are probably been planted 70 years ago. So, you know, 70 years is a long time to have a field into something. Yeah. <laughs> it works good. I mean, it's kind of the original no-till type setup. We just were running grass pastures like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I took over this ranch about 30 years ago, we were all flood irrigation. And we've moved a lot of it to sprinklers. We've moved some of it to gated pipe. But I've got seven pivots running. I've got three wheel lines. I don't like them as much as I like the pivots. The pivots, you turn them on, you let them go. Got them on my telephone. I can irrigate for anywhere in the world. I know when they're working. I know when they're not. And that's that's a big plus. Mm-hmm. We have had a lot of discussions, Bill, on this podcast about like, the Ag Optimization Committee here and Task Force here in the state of Utah and discussions about kind of like on-farm improvements to make water conservation goals, meet our water conservation goals and to kind of try and be a little bit more resilient with what we have. For the pivots that you do have in your wheel lines, there's been a lot of talk about LEPA technologies, kind of like the low-hanging sprinklers that bring water closer to the ground. Are any of your operations using those kind of technologies or where are you at in terms of your ability to kind of adopt some of those technologies? I'm very intrigued by those technologies. I haven't pulled the trigger and adopted any of them yet. Mm -hmm. I'm just running basically the standard sprinter packages, but I've, I've been aware of these systems for a few years. I'm really just the worst at being an early adopter. I don't Mm-hmm. I, I don't tend to take the leap until I see somebody else trying it first. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of bad that way. But basically, I'm just running standard pivots. Yeah. Well, no, and that's kind of why I wanted to ask, too, because I think one of the conversations that we have a lot is here in the state of Utah, and we're not alone in our sister states, you know, we are really looking towards agriculture as a means to make our water portfolio go a little bit further by adopting these new technologies. But those are also really big asks of people on the ground. It's a lot of money to change operations. It's a a lot of time. It's a lot of resources. It's a lot of dedication to doing that adoption. And so one of the reasons why I wanted to ask you that is because in these discussions, I think it's really important to go back and kind of realize that every operation is so different. Every manager is different. Every manager has different goals and abilities and desires. And I think in the bigger discourse, understanding that to kind of give us a gauge of our timeframes and our success rates are really, really important. And so I think there's probably a lot of folks who are waiting in the wings to kind of see what these ag optimization task force come up with and what some of the ultimate recommendations are before they become adopters. So, right. Yeah. And it's going to be very interesting to see where all of these things go, you know, especially like with the ag optimization. You know, I'm part of my duties with the conservation district here. One of the things I do is I am the member from this zone on the UCC, the Utah Conservation Commission. Mm-hmm. And we oversee that ag water optimization grant program that they're just rolling out right now. 
and I've been involved with that a little bit, and it's very interesting to see some of the things that people are coming up with. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited, excited about seeing what goes on. Yeah, for sure. And that's the Utah Conservation Commission, you said, right? The UCC? Yeah, yes. Right. Yeah, and you're working with the Utah Department of Food and Ag, UDAF. Yes. On, so for, the, for listeners who don't know, here in the state of Utah, we received a fair amount of ARPA money from basically COVID relief funds. And we as a state prioritize putting a fairly large amount of money into ag optimization grants for operators to apply for anything that there's a whole wide variety of things you could apply for, but basically kind of like on-farm conservation methods, you could get funding for irrigation ditch lining to sprinkler upgrades. And I want to say, Bill, we had our first round end on April 15th, I believe, but they're going to do another round here in July, right? That's my understanding. Yeah. Is our cool. first round closed middle of April. So are you actually sitting in your role on the Price Watershed Conservation District as actually like reviewing the applications? Is that what your job is with the UCC? Like helping the UDAF pick and choose or what what is your role as being the representative on the UCC? On the UCC, we set the ranking criteria. We're not going to be looking at individual applications, I don't think. I'm hoping they don't ask us to do that because there's a lot of applications. They've got staff to do that. I think they're going to bring us applications to approve. Mm-hmm. And what are some of the criteria? I'm sure. <laughs> well, it's only been a couple of weeks. I'm sure they'll get back to you. What are some of the criteria that you guys set as some of those application criteria? Well, the major criteria is we need to be able to measure the water we expect to save. That's kind of our major criteria, as I remember it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's my understanding, too, is like you can kind of propose a project, but the ultimate metric of determining whether or not a successful application is making sure that you can actually show that that made a difference, that the improvement yeah. made a difference. Okay, exactly. cool. So we've got you sitting in a bunch of different places doing different things. We've got your actual operations with Martha Livestock, 700 irrigated acres. You're kind of working on traditional sprinklers with pivots and, and wheel lines. You're kind of looking to see how some of these early adopters deal, you know, how it works for their operations. And you're getting kind of a firsthand look from that sitting on the UCC, which is the Utah Conservation Commission. And so kind of a, a wide variety of activities I guess one of the questions I have for you and kind of why I wanted to have you on is that being in agriculture and having this be your livelihood, one of the things that I'm seeing from kind of an outside perspective, and you've kind of already hit on it with your role in the UCC, is that there's a ton of programs out there right now for agriculture, a ton of funding opportunities, a ton of things you could be involved in. How do you see the water community writ large, best engaging with the folks on the ground to make them aware of these programs or to help them understand what's available? Because I do think that just the time and effort needed to keep track of what's happening is a pretty substantial ask of folks. And so kind of sitting both in the role on some of these organizations and actually having an operation of yourself, what do you think the best ways that we can like talk to ag or make things available to ag so that 
our adoption rates and our participation rates in these programs are as high as, as possible. You know, and that's an interesting problem is how to reach the people that you're trying to reach. And the best way I know to do it is by example. Mm-hmm. If, if we can reach some producers in an area and their neighbors, because neighbors are always watching what the other neighbors are doing. If you can do these things by example, and that's kind of what the conservation districts are doing. The conservation districts across the state were set up to be basically the go-betweens between the federal government, the funding sources, and the local producers. I'm sure you you know that mm-hmm. the scariest thing a producer can hear is somebody to say, hey, I'm the federal government. I'm here to help. Yes. Or I'm that, from Salt Lake. I'm here to help. <laughs> that is terrifying. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's because mm-hmm. that never goes well. Uh-huh. The conservation districts were kind of set up to be just producer-oriented boards that could act as that liaison, that's something really important conservation districts are doing. But there are so many programs, it it is very difficult to keep an eye on everything. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult to figure out which ones are going to work. Just the different funding sources, the requirements. Sometimes the money is not worth the headache that's going to come along with it. A lot of times it is, but Sometimes it's just not. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we've seen, and you mentioned it earlier in our call too already, is that we are going through very large demographic changes here in the state. We've had a lot of really key folks retire in the last little bit. And I had a, a gentleman on, oh, maybe like six months ago named Colt Smith about drinking water regulations. And he he had one of the more interesting comments was about how all of their drinking water operators are all dying on him. <laughs> And so do you see that the demographics are keeping up with having these conservation districts populated by people who are of the time and willingness? Or is that something that we as a state need to also think about too, is like, who are the folks who are willing and able to participate on these districts? Because I mean, they're all volunteer boards, right? I mean, it's a lot of, it's a fair amount of time. We do get paid a little bit for being uh-huh. there. We end up being state employees. So it's not entirely oh, okay. volunteer, mm-hmm. but we're not paid anywhere near worth the trouble that it is to actually go sit in one of these meetings and whatnot. Mm-hmm. A lot of boards are having trouble with that demographic. They're populated by the old timers and a lot of boards are. And it's tough to find somebody younger who wants to step in and do that. Mm-hmm. Our Price River board is actually probably one of the youngest boards that I'm aware of. We've got a bunch of young members. Some of the other districts in my zone are, there's one that that demanded that if you're going to retire, that you find somebody else to take your place. It was kind of a joke requirement, but there was a a real need behind it too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we're definitely seeing that demographic changes are happening and still very locally dependent on what that means for the specific boards across the state. So what do you think, though, that we should be doing as a state then to keep agriculture in production? We did that Envision Utah survey back in 2015, where we identified that we have a bunch of uh, changing elements here in the state of Utah, and keeping a strong agricultural presence is a state priority. What do you think that we as a state and a water community should be doing to, to best help our agricultural partners continue to stay in production if that's what they desire to do? Well... 
probably one of the more important things is to just let us keep doing this. I mean, we're under tremendous pressures to do mm-hmm. this, and we don't get paid near as much to do this as we get paid to be not doing this. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure, especially, there's places in the state where it just does not make monetary sense to have land in ag when it could be sold and done something else with. It's it's something that a person's got to really love doing to keep doing. To support that, I'm not sure exactly how somebody outside of ag could help. So, so one of the conversations that. I had when I was down in Price a while back, we were talking about crop switching as a means of reducing our water footprints and going from a an agricultural or an alfalfa standard that's a pretty high high water consumptive crop to like a barley or like a, a grain that had a, a lower consumptive value. And one of the more interesting things that came up in that conversation is that, yes, that'd be lovely, but I still have to ship my cattle to a feedlot, which is very expensive, which costs me lots of money. And if there were a feedlot closer by, that is something that I think that would make me help have something that would be more available to me to do some crop switching, to switch to these lower water value crops. And so thinking about our bigger water picture, one of the things I've been thinking about is, well, how do we adjust our tax base to incentivize not gas or water guzzling data centers on our big vacant lands out in the West Desert, but incentivize a a more of a localized economy that can support a water friendly or a water a water smart bigger picture. Is there anything that you think that looking at from your perspective, what would help you to make some of the changes that folks are are looking at ag to make here in the near future? Are there anything in your mind that comes to mind that would be of a benefit or something that you don't have in the local community that would be helpful? What you're describing is basically a vertical integration where Yeah. Mm-hmm where we don't have to ship our cattle out of state to out of state feedlots. It could be done right here in the state of Utah. And that's, that's something, you know, I actually know some guys that are working on doing just such a thing mm-hmm. so that we do have a little bit more vertical integration as far as saving water with that. And it, it could be used to save water. If we could switch our crops to a little bit, have a feedlot that's a little more readily. Right now, see, I, I run a bunch of cattle and then the, fall, I wean the calves, and then I put them in my own feedlot. Mm-hmm. And it takes a lot of hay. I, I go through a lot of hay over the course of the winter and do what they call backgrounding, or just feeding these calves from the weaning weight up to, I go to about 800 pounds before I ship them. And they typically mm-hmm. will go to Colorado. But if I could shorten that time up, I'd have a lot less need for alfalfa. And then a crop switch might make some real sense mm-hmm. to go from an alfalfa to a grass pasture, which needs a lot less water or barley crop or corn crop, mm-hmm. something sure. What are some of the other elements of that vertical integration that we could kind of look at to keep things more local or keep things in a way that would potentially allow you to thrive and have your operation thrive a little bit easier? Well, just from a cattle operation perspective, Local slaughterhouses, you know, someplace that could actually take in cattle and do the harvest on them would be something that 
very important because right now there are very few options. Well, like I say, most of my calves I sell and they go into the feedlot in Colorado and then I never see them. Mm-hmm. If I could retain ownership, keep them here in the state of Utah and have them go through a slaughterhouse that would be here in the state. You mm-hmm. know, they could be branded as, as Utah beef and marketed as such. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you know where they go now once they go to Colorado at all? Do you know if like who the suppliers are or you're just kind of the you're just the meat end of the of the project? I, I yeah, I'm I'm just the calf raising end of it. I they mm-hmm. used to go into a JBS feedlot. Now they're just going into an independent feedlot most of the time. Where they go from there, I don't know. I've always been interested to know exactly, but that data is tough to track to get a hold of. And if unless you're in a program that is tracking that, there's different programs that are out there that you can put cattle into, but they always have just struck me as kind of a gimmick. Mm-hmm. They say, oh, pay us this up front to put your calves in this program. We can guarantee you another couple of cents per pound when you go to sell them. And you get a little bit more money, but it's uh, kind of a gimmick. Hmm. Interesting. Oh, it always struck me as a gimmick. Uh-huh. Well, as a non-cattle producer person, I'm always interested to learn about how things actually work on the ground. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I think that is interesting. What are some of the other things that are kind of on your mind as a producer? I know that it's been a tumultuous couple of years, you know, all we've had over the last six years, we've had a global pandemic, we had tariffs, we had all kinds of stuff that really affected, you know, outside the fact that we're in mega drought that have affected a lot of the folks here in Utah and their productions. Like what are the things that, that kind of are on your mind as you think about what, you know, tomorrow brings, or the next day brings that, that you need to address just as a producer and an operator? You know, the drought is a big one. Mm-hmm. Kind of the elephant in the room, so to speak, but everybody's talking about it. it it's a tough one. And our operation I never designed our operation to withstand like a D3 drought, but it turns out we do pretty good up to a D3. We are, we have redundancies and we, our sizes are right. We can do that. Mm-hmm. We got into that D4 drought last year and that one, that one really hurt. We ended up selling about a third of our herd mm-hmm. in June of, of 2021. And we're still trying to recover from that. Our, our numbers are down, but that's the only reason we're still going too. Is our ranges are part of our ranges? We got some pretty good rain on last fall. Part of them we did. There's one of our big permits that we don't have a single cow on right now. We should have half of our cows on. There's nothing. We've got those cows home on our feet. Mm-hmm. So that drought just it, that one. That's a bad one. And our our ranges something that. You know, and this is a water podcast. Something that really could help ranges is water improvements across grazing lands. And you're talking about grazing on federal lands. You hold several grazing Where, permits on federal lands. I hold several grazing permits on federal lands. I also hold a, just a private lease with a, a private landowner that's on about 5,600 acres. Mm-hmm. And then our ranch itself owns a few thousand acres here and there, just ourselves. Mm-hmm. But something that we could really use is water improvements across those ranges. Because hmm. something that's happening, I don't know what the cause of this is, but the water seems to be kind of going away on our mountains. There's springs drying up. There's little streams 
that used to run pretty regular that I haven't seen run at all except for flash floods for years. And I don't know if that's mining that has done that, if it's if it's fracking mm-hmm. that's done that. We've, we've got a lot of energy development in the area. And the drought, I'm sure, is a big contributor. But for some reason, we are losing a lot of our water on our mountain ranges. That's we used to rely on springs, on little perennial streams to water cattle, and they're going away a lot. Mm-hmm. So I know a lot of guys that do a lot of water hauling. Thirty years ago, I, I remember nobody hauled water. If you had a really bad dry spell, you'd have a tank on the back of your truck and go out and haul water. Seems like now everybody's got a, a dedicated water truck, you know, an actual 10-wheeler truck that does nothing but haul water. That's a shift that I have seen. We've gone from, from hauling water was just emergency, short time thing. It's kind of more of a full-time something you got to do. And that's also a cost to you. I mean, you got to put gas in that truck and... And take it up the hill and wear and tear. And so when you do your water hauling, are you just bringing them out to troughs out on your grangeland? Is that typically like how you deliver that water to your cattle? Just uh, disperse troughs? Mm -hmm. Disperse troughs. We've got a few larger tanks that have a smaller trough and a float set up. So you stage a Mm -hmm. lot of water in one spot, but you don't have to Mm -hmm. tend it as much. But basically it's distributed troughs. And something that's... Uh, there's a government program that's been going on through the, the grazing improvement program, which is they'll do a lot of well, you drill a well, you run some pipe out, put a trough out where you need it. So that's kind of what program. you mean by rangeland improvement, like some some grazing yeah. improvement projects. Yeah, yeah. I think yes. they just did a really big one in Rich County in the northern part of the state, where like the Forest Service applied to change all their stream water, their stock to stock points of diversion to this like huge multi-unit development project where they're moving towards wells and, and tanks i think i just go look at that but that's what i understand they're doing okay yeah and that's that's program that's going on i haven't pulled the trigger on getting involved in one of those yet i'm gonna have to sooner or later because like i say the water is disappearing you can't afford to haul it it's, mm-hmm. it's just just something that's going to need to be done Okay. Yeah, that's super helpful. So for you as as a producer, a rangeland or grazing improvement project would be something that would be that would benefit you. Yep. That sounds good. So you do sit as the president of the Price River Water Users Association. And so for listeners who are newer to that, that is basically the water user association that deals with storage water, correct? Up in Schofield Reservoir. We, we, we have the storage right on Schofield Reservoir. That's, yeah. that's correct. And what the association basically does is keep track of who owns shares in the association with rights to the water. There's a second storage project also proposed, like Gnarly Reservoir, correct? Up yes. In that area? We're, we're looking at uh, a lower basin reservoir. Barley Wash was one site we thought would work really well. And there, we've actually identified another site. We're working on the EIS on getting a lower base reservoir put in. Price City has a 5,000 acre foot storage right that nothing has been done with. You know, it's, it's never been developed. So we've got this 5,000 acre feet right that we could put towards the reservoir. And we're thinking that would be really helpful. 
Well, it's, it's Price Cities. And the reservoir is going to be below Price Cities treatment. So there's going to have to be some exchanges done so that the lower basin reservoir we eventually build will serve ag and will mm-hmm. trade the water back up into Schofield Reservoir, which is above the treatment plants. And that's that's an exciting thing. We've got new storage and then we've got a regulating reservoir because one of the problems that we really have on the Price River is regulation. And I imagine this is a problem in all you know, systems everywhere, but that river it fluctuates a lot in the daytime. And basically all of the water in the river goes out to diversions. And the last diversion on the river gets all of the fluctuation. Mm-hmm. And we've we've started a really interesting project on that just recently. We've, we've automated the canal that's the second to the last on the river to try to take most of the fluctuation into that canal and leave the last canal at more of a steady pace because it, we kind of felt like the canal, it's the second to the last, could handle the fluctuations a lot better. So we're, we're trying to do some optimizations that way. We think we can probably save 1,500 acre feet of water a year oh, just, wow. just by doing that. Mm-hmm. So, and that's a project that we've been been involved with. Trout Unlimited has thrown a little bit of funding towards it. They thought that was a, a really neat idea. Mm-hmm. We looked at going through the, the water optimization grant program to, to fund that, but it just, the timing wasn't quite right on it. We wanted to get this done. Mm-hmm. The grant programs, they don't pay on anything that you do before the ink is dry on the, on the grant. Yep. So we wanted to get this done. We said, you know what? This is not going to cost that much. We're just going to do it and see where this goes. Awesome. But Trout, Trout mm-hmm. Unlimited did jump in and give us a little bit of money for it. So that's always useful. Great. And so that is basically an optimization project that basically is, is putting in some telemetry. And um, do you have gates as well, like automated gates that help you guys kind of control those fluctuations? Is that part yes. of the project? Okay. Telemetry and gates? Yes. Mm-hmm. We've got telemetry, we've got automated gates. It's an exciting project to try to hold that river more level mm-hmm. at, at the end of merging. So. Okay. Well, sounds a bunch, like a bunch of cool things. So we've got some more locally centered vertical integration as a, as a potential possibility for, you know, helping local producers keep their products more local keep your costs low and then also maybe have some ancillary water savings. So we've got some, you know, grazing improvement projects on the graze lands to kind of deal with our diminishing springs and streams this is something that, you know, you as a producer would find helpful. And then optimization of our, of our working systems through telemetry and automated gates to kind of help keep some of the fluctuations in your system a little more evenly distributed as, as a pretty helpful tool that you've seen happen in the last couple of years. Yeah. 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 And, and I'm really excited about, about that lower base reservoir too, because that's mm-hmm. something we can really use is, is the regulation on the river. We can use mm-hmm. that, that reservoir to regulate the excess storage is going to be great too. The really exciting thing for me is being able to regulate the river so much closer. Because right now, Schofield Reservoir is a long ways up the river mm-hmm. from where we're actually diverting it. In. It's not a very optimal system to have that reservoir so far up the river. But if we had a little place we could catch the water and regulate it with, that'd be perfect. 
You know, awesome. I've looked at the Emory County system. You know, you've had J. Mark Humphreys on mm-hmm. program, and he, Emory County's got some really nice systems like that. They, they they run a similar system to what I'm trying to replicate here up with Joe's Valley and their new Adobe that's important. They let water out of Joe's Valley and, and regulate it with Adobe, and then it's delivered out into the community from there. Mm-hmm. And I'd, I'd like to replicate just exactly that with our lower basin. Yeah, Emory Emory Water Conservancy District really is. They, I mean, Jay Humphrey is just prescient. I mean, he's twenty years ahead of where other places in the state are. You know, almost almost twenty five years ahead. I mean, they started working on things in the mid nineties, and it's pretty it's pretty impressive to see where they're at. I want to say they've got. Our, it's been a while since we did the interview, but they had like four hundred and ten sites or something like that where they had telemetry on their system to tell, you know, exactly where their every drop of their water was at every moment in time. I mean, they're they're pretty pretty sophisticated actually. <laughs> they're very sophisticated. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'd like to emulate his system because they do a really good job. I'd like to bring my own system to be a little bit closer to, to what they've got. Mm-hmm. So for you, what I'm hearing you say, it's, it's not so much the extra storage from a volume perspective, but it's the regulating element that really is going to be the most beneficial to local water users. Well, don't get me wrong. We want the extra storage too, because there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of water that we could capture that we could put used to and we have we have a water right that's just sitting there waiting for us to do it but as a water manager the thing that really gets me excited is thought that we could use that as a regulated reservoir and really increase our efficiencies Because price is pretty unique too, because I mean, do you have five different irrigation companies that are right there in a very small little narrow valley that divert all from the same place? How many how many different <laughs> irrigation companies do you have right there? There are five diversions on the river. There's there's actually twelve different canal companies, uh-huh. or at least ditch companies, but some of those are consolidated. Mm-hmm. You've got the North Carbon Water Group that has three or four different companies in it, and the Price Wellington Canal Company has four or five water companies that have combined into that one canal. There's a couple just standalones. Carbon Canal is big water user on the, the system. Mm-hmm. And they're a standalone by themselves. And so this lower regulating reservoir may be a benefit to all 12 of those companies. It really would be. I keep making the case that it would be. It really would serve the Price Wellington Canal Company, which is five different ditch companies and in Carbon Canal. It's going to be a little bit too low to get North Carbon Group, but if we could feed their system from the reservoir, even if we backfeed part of their system, they've got a real problem with volume. They, they don't have enough capacity or they have barely enough capacity. And the system that they use to take water out of the river is not the best. It plugs up and if you have dirty water, they have a lot of trouble cleaning it, getting it into their system. So I think there's a lot of ways we could help with a lower basin reservoir. Just in building the reservoir, we could help them to get cleaner water and more water. I think it's just a win-win for everybody on the, the mm-hmm. whole valley. And where are you guys at in that? So you said you're in the middle of your EIS, right? We are in the middle of our EIS. The mm-hmm. EIS taken a little bit longer than, well, than advertised. I, I always <laughs> knew 
I always knew the timeline was pretty ambitious. So reality is setting in and it, EIS has taken a long time. And we've mm-hmm. got a good engineering company. Orox Engineering is working through the, the EIS. We had a PL566 grant to get mm-hmm. this done through the NRCS. So we're making good progress mm-hmm. on this reservoir. And, you know, the reservoir is something that's been looked at in the past a lot, and it's just never been followed through to fruition. So I'm hoping this time we actually get something going. Yeah. No, I think like these are the kind of questions I have because I'm just like curious about what what do the folks on the ground see as the most useful tools for them? You know, and obviously it's going to be very different depending on where you are and the local conditions, but where to put our time and resources, like where to put our energies, I think it's just really helpful to kind of constantly be identifying that and reassessing that because there's only at the end of the day there's only so much bandwidth you know there's only so much time only so much that people can do and so kind of getting a discourse about what's the most effective for those who who are most affected by it i think is really important well that's that's something like with the lower basin there's a more thing what i'd really like to do is is use that as, as the settling pond to pipe the canals right now most of our canals are just open ditch canals. The mm-hmm. North Carbon Group does have a pipe system. They're all pipes pressurized. But Price Wellington is an open ditch up into the Wellington system. Wellington is, is piped, but they're just piped straight off the open canal. Carbon Canal is a completely open system. And if you put the reservoir in place, then you put your pipes in the bottom of that reservoir and take them out into the valley and distribute your ag water that way it's so much more efficient there's so much less loss it's something that i'm really excited about so what is it even though it's moving a little slower what do you think the time frame is on this project we're hoping to have the eis done by next year and the funding is going to be the next big hurdle to to overcome is get this thing funded everybody Mm -hmm. wants to to see this happen and nobody really wants to put the bill for it so it's going to be, we're, we're going to see what kind of magic we've got to make happen to, to get this thing paid for. But I really think if there's a good project, you can find money to make it happen. And I think this one's going to go the same way. We're going to have some money mm-hmm. that we're going to be able to use to, to do this. So we won't be able to start construction next year, of course. Mm-hmm. If we get the EIS done, then we've got to do all the, the real engineering. We've got to dig into it and really get some planning done get everybody on board and getting everybody on board is going to be the tricky part. There's a lot of people who, uh, who don't want to change. Mm-hmm. You know, you've, you've really got to show them what the benefits are and that's difficult. Yeah. I think that's a, a general statement for water. <laughs> change, change is hard. Change is hard for sure. Cool. Well, Bill, this has been really helpful for me just to kind of sit down. And I mean, we, we work together on a couple of different projects, so we haven't had a chance just to kind of sit down and pick your brain about kind of what you're thinking about. But I think you've identified some cool projects for our listeners to kind of think about, about in terms of what, you know, is impactful for on the ground water users. Is there anything else you thought about that you think could be a, a benefit to you or something that's happening in price that we didn't get a chance to chat about that you think would be helpful for water users to, to chew on a bit? You know, I can't think of anything really. I'll, I'll probably be talking to you again about water banking. Yeah, you we'll know, have a full we'll of a full price. on price water bank. Yeah, the, don't worry about the, that. The price, one. The, the price river was 
we had the first contract water bank in the state, the first water bank of any sort in the state. Mm -hmm. So I look forward to chatting with you about that. But as far as opening up that can of worms on this podcast, I don't think we really have time to go there, do we? <laughs> well, we'll invite all the worms to that podcast. Don't worry. <laughs> That'll be Everyone. Yeah, we'll we'll have a we'll have a price over water bank conversation with all the participants. Kind of, we're waiting for our change application to go through, and then we'll have a, a chat with everyone because it has been quite the journey and a, a very exciting things happening on that front. But also, like the th thing that's so interesting is that it's been you know through the water banking act and through the water banking project is one of the cool things about our pilot projects is that we learn a lot about. Our specifics of our, of our pilot projects, but then just like all of the ancillary activity that is, that is happening in those pilot project areas and price being one. I mean, you just mentioned five or six things that are happening in your area. And it, it really has been a great microscope to look at just like how much water activity is happening across the state in just these like little pockets. I mean, like the price is not a very big area and there's so much activity going on just in this one little spot. And so it's been really fun to kind of learn about all, all the different things that are happening by kind of just focusing on one little one little local area as, as your example. So, great. We, we do have a lot going on. Yes, you do. Be at the center of it, and I, I hope I can paint the picture for your listeners. Yeah, about mm -hmm. how it is. Perfect. That sounds great. Nothing said in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. This podcast was produced by Andrew Humphreys. Find Ripple Effect on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thank you for listening.